0: uh all right you got a joke a joke oh yeah i forgot about the joke uh you forgot about the joke that's like the only homework when you come on the show i know i know
1: um okay can we let me think can we do the joke at the end <laughs> <Maybe something? laughs> and then edit it to the beginning oh my god i'm the worst okay a joke <laughs> like i have this weird like it's Okay, it's so like it was this weird joke my mom always tells, she like thinks it's so funny. Well, she also has like this, same as me, like the memory capacity, like Dory from Finding Nemo, hence forgetting the joke. Um, so she like literally always tells the same joke, like it's like her first time for her. It's a fun, uh, fun queer joke, I guess. Um, what are the three main parts on a stove? and she always thinks she's telling it first, so I'm like, I don't know mom, I've heard it before. Um, What is it? And she says, it's the lifter, the leg, and the poker. So, it's just like, I learned that from a lesbian.
0: (laughs) Hello, this is The Calgarian. I'm Taylor Lambert. Josh Whitehead, the Josh Whitehead, is my guest today. Josh is a wonderfully talented writer, Whose work explores complexities around indigeneity, sexuality, trauma, identity, in really remarkable ways. His novel, Johnny Appleseed, was long-listed for the Giller, shortlisted for the Governor General's Prize, it's up for the sixty thousand dollar Amazon Canada first novel prize. He's also a super nice guy. And he lives in Calgary. What? We had a really good conversation, and just a note on this episode, you might notice that it sounds different from previous episodes. That's because the recording studio that I normally use at the Central Library is closed for maintenance, so Josh and I recorded this with a handheld recorder. I think it turned out pretty well, but if you have thoughts on the sound quality, shout them out, let me hear them. Just before we get to Josh, though, a reminder, that this podcast relies on your support. If you want to tell your friends or post about the show on social media, that is a big help. If you want to leave a review in your podcast app, that helps people find the show. And if you dig this show and want it to keep bringing you conversations with interesting Calgarians, you can become a supporter on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Visit thecalgarian.ca for more details. And now, here is my conversation with Josh Whitehead. I'm going to say, for, like pulling something out of your ass at the last thing. that was a pretty good joke.
1: Oh, I thank you. I thank you. <laughs> See, I, I did rehearse. I just went to... Give you some anxiety. Oh, this, this was all staged, okay? <laughs> you being punked.
0: You, you know what? I, I think you're probably forgiven for forgetting about the joke because we were supposed to record this like two weeks ago or three weeks ago or something, first uh, time, and that's when I told you to bring a joke, and so you, you, know, you just forgot about it. Yeah, that's okay. And I've also been like putting you
1: on the run around, so sorry about that. But it's been a busy three weeks. It's fine.
0: You're, you're a big shot. You got to travel overseas and stuff, so
1: overseas, surviving jet lag, surviving Game of Thrones, so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so when I told people that you were going to be on the show, Mm -hmm. I got two very distinct reactions from my friends and people I talked to about the show. Uh, It was either, I've never heard of Josh Whitehead, Mm -hmm. or I fucking love Josh Whitehead. (laughs) I'm very polemic. There's absolutely no in-between there. It's like people either do not know who you are and don't know your work or they do and they think you're fucking amazing.
1: Oh, I thank you? And I get the same reviews from both of my books. Um, So like when I wrote Full Metal, which is a book of poetry, people are like, Josh, this this sounds like prose or prose poems. And I was like, okay, so I'll write a novel. I wrote a novel and apparently it sounds poetic. So I'm very polemic in everything I do, I think. (laughs) You love it or you haven't heard of it. Or as some of my critics say, they really like hate the fact that Johnny Appleseed has no plot. Um, so, uh, and I agree, it doesn't, really. It's just kind of this like, cyclical fever dream, as my publisher put it. So I, I think I create a lot of polemics as I kind of move through the world.
0: Cyclical fever dream sounds about right, but we should probably set this up for people who don't know who you are. So you are a writer, mm-hmm. and put it in the most broad terms, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that your work generally explores the intersection of indigeneity and sexuality is that is that fair for the most part yeah i would say that those are the two main kind of um structural bones to it yeah and you are i would argue you're probably one of the most important writers right now because nobody is nobody that i know of is writing what you write about in the way that you write about it like i think it's you're covering very unique ground in a very unique way and so you've written two books uh so maybe just Give us the overview of what those two books are. You already mentioned uh, a book of poetry and a novel. Mm-hmm. We'll tell, tell, start, start with uh, Full Metal and DigiQueer. So
1: Full Metal and DigiQueer um, is this kind of, I guess people have been calling it experimental. Um, for me, it's just kind of the, the normativity of my kind of modes of thinking. So it's a book of poetry, which is, um, and it's just kind of about the cybernetic trickster whose kind of code name in terms of digital language is the protozoa, uh, or zoa for short. And Zoe so is this character who's like lived with me for like the longest amount of times. Um, so it's always kind of been my like login handles. Um, I always make this joke that Zoa has been like a Neopet. He's been <laughs> an orc in World and Warcraft. Uh, so he's kind of like yeah, always kind of been with me as a kind of a, a character and a, almost like a pseudonym almost, I guess I would say. Um, so Full Metal and Digi-Queer is a book of poetry about this, kind of, this character who is really not a character, I guess. It's, they're like a-bodied, agendered, asex. They're just kind of like this computer virus. Um, and I crafted them thinking of three primary tricksters. Um, so Nanabojo, which kind of comes out of Algonquin, Anishinaabe. Um, peoples. so it's a kind of this, like, this trickster figure that has the ability to kind of transform between genders and sexes. Um, so i kind of move freely between that, which for me was like a very kind of queer pedagogy and also kind of a queer modality um, within the creation stories or trickster stories. Um, and then it also kind of incorporates uh, Iktomi, who is a trickster spider from the Lakota peoples. So basically Turtle Island was at least how the Lakota see it. Um, this trickster spider, which is fundamental to their ways of being, but that would kind of branch out and make these kind of webs across across Turtle Island or North America um, so Iktomi or this trickster spider is thought to have crafted the first world wide web and that's all about kinship um, so I was like this is so interesting that the land itself that is Turtle Island already kind of has this kind of integral network um, and hyperlinks um, and kind of connections like almost like a technology connection becomes a technology I would say with that. And then the third is not really a trickster figure, but um, this prominent figure, Wavoka, who was kind of outlawed because of the ghost dance, but it's all about kind of raising or destruction in order to kind of allow space for growth. So I would, they're kind of like Thanos, I guess, from <laughs> um, like the Marvel films. Um, but like, yeah, it's kind of ra- like raising grass to so let new grass grows, right? Or kind of new plants or new ecosystems. So it's... So it's kind of a mishmash of these three characters and it's all about kind of destruction for the sake of creation, all about kind of transformation, and then all about thinking about the ways in which indigeneity already kind of has its own technology. So they act like this virus within, uh, that uh, this character up is uploaded into kind of the w- larger world wide web um, and uses his, their ability as kind of this virus to infect the canon uh, and recenter indigenous characters
0: within those. It's, it's such a brilliant book. Um, I feel like, for a lot of people, poetry is something that is generally like something that's inaccessible. It's confusing. They don't get it. They had to, like, read it in high school, and they haven't really read it since. And when they hear you talk about something like this, they're like, holy shit, I don't understand any of this. Like, this is just so far beyond me. Um, Obviously, like you said, it's been described as experimental. How? Like, I mean, it is very brilliant, and I want to know how you come up with something like that. Like, how, what, what was the the kernel that you started with for an idea for, for something like that?
1: Yeah, so Full Metal has been about five, six years in the making, um, very slowly kind of crafting these poems and like kind of crafting voice, I suppose, of, of myself as a, as a poet um, or a storyteller. Um, but I say some of the first poems specifically within Full Metal kind of came from my absolute annoyance um, and anger. So I would say full metal is a very much kind of, um, a kind of paranoid style of writing, I guess, where I, like what I was doing as an undergrad and as a master student was like finding these texts or being force fed these texts kind of like in a gluttonous way, like Shakespeare or Milton, um, or even pop cultural texts. So what I was doing was like, I wasn't seeing representation in the way I wanted to see representation. Um, So like Franz Fanon says, we need to kind of see ourselves in order to know ourselves in healthy ways. And if we have all these kind of distorted or unhealthy or disrespectful figures, such as kind of the Indian um, in like Western films, like that's what we, we we ascribe to, I guess, in a sense, where we kind of interpolate ourselves through these images. So I wanted to kind of do that. But I'm also like super nerdy, uh, as I'm sure you have noticed. Uh, specifically in Full Metal, there's like X-Men references, um, from X-Men to kind of um, digital media or apps such as like Grinder or Repulse Drag Race or the Terminator. Um, so I've always been kind of drawn to these, I guess, cyborg futures. And I would say the most prominent one within Full Metal is Akira, the kind of cyberpunk underground but i would say it's kind of mainstream now um this kind of cyberpunk film about these kind of mutated kids who um are kind of tested upon by the nation state this is set in, within japan um, and then we kind of become bioweapons for them and i thought that was really cool like i, th- and I th- was kind of thinking about that in similar i guess to um the same thing that kind of happened with residential schools and uh, what i was thinking about was like what if we became bioweapons uh, or what if we kind of Became cyborgs in a like a Haraway sense, um, or what if we kind of use the tools to kind of quote Audre Lorde to kind of just dis- destroy the house? Um, so I was really kind of born from that, and I was like, let me use this like this anger, this annoyance, or this paranoia, um, and let me put it into the character that's kind of lived with me for as long as I can remember, um, and let me just kind of set them loose, let them raise hell, and raise, all right. I-S-E and um, And let's see what kind of comes from that destruction. What's, what emerges in the rubble? Um, so, I think one of the first poems I wrote in that book was, I think the, the actual poem Full Metal Oji um, which is also kind of inspired by this theorist, mm-hmm. Takumi Tatsumi, who has this book called Full Metal Apache. Um, and in this book, he's like detailing um, how these kids in post-World War II Japan are, um, basically orphaned after the war and they're also kind of thinking about um, representation they're watching these western films and they, they're like these scrapyard kids who are collecting this metal to sell in order to kind of procure a living um, and they're so infatuated with the kind of american films at this time that they see i think like a john wayne movie or something and then they start calling themselves full metal apaches um, and i was like that's so cool like this is how. It's like, again, like languages like hyper, or even like films, or like hyper, like links or hyper texts globally. Um, so it's like, I wanted to kind of bring that back to to kind of armorize, I guess, or give armor to indigeneity through this idea of full metal. Um, and then also kind of making them technologic, as we've already kind of, as I said, with the stories already kind of have these technologies inherent within them. So I wrote full metal OG Cree, which was very much about kind of making myself robotic in a sense, and then... That was like the first one. It was like kind of a test trial and it didn't work when it was my voice. Um, but it did work when I gave it to the voice of this virus. Why d- Why didn't it work when it was your voice? I think for me, I just, I think I had limitations um, as a body person. Um, so it was kind of maybe it was a little more Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator than it is um, something like Blade Runner. Um, or than it is something like girl with a dragon's tattoo. There's different abilities. So when I was giving it to myself, this voice, this poetic voice, it just didn't work because I couldn't find the right language or I think I had limitations of the body. So then when I kind of gave it to this viral figure, I suppose, I, th- I just felt like I could do so much more. One, because it wasn't a bodied figure. Two, because the voice was in my own voice. It was a kind of a character. Um, and three, because it was someone. It was a figure that was so imbricated with me that it was an essence of me, I guess, the essence of my voice, but it was able to kind of take it further or kind of mutate it even more.
0: Before we go on to Johnny Appleseed, there's one more thing I want to talk about this book, and that's uh, the Lambda nomination. So, Full Metal in Digicrew was nominated for Lambda award in the trans poetry category, and you withdrew yourself from consideration. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so a full metal was put forward um, by Talon Books and then accepted by the Lambda for, for this kind of trans poetry categorization. And I understand through the Lambdas that you don't actually have to self-identify um, within the categories. It, your work just kind of has to be about that. And there was a couple of things that was, one, I think of myself, Like I think when we like put breath to language or the act of orality. You're already kind of entering into a space of community self-care or community ethics. Um, so when I when I was writing Full Metal and when I performed Full Metal and what I want Full Metal to do is kind of be an ethical sense of community care. One for indigenous peoples, um, a second one, queer, two-spirit indigenous peoples, and then three, the larger kind of LGBT communities. Um, and then, so when I was put forward for this, one, I didn't feel comfortable being in it. My character, like I said, it really has no body, no no gender, no sex or sexuality. They're just this virus. Um, another reason, I think a lot of times people will like Google the term two-spirit and it'll be like someone who houses like a masculine and feminine spirit. It's so much more than that. Um, but then automatically think well, this must be like a trans category or a trans person or a trans identity, which it's not. It wasn't for me. I'm not a trans person. My character is not a trans person. Even though they may kind of have attributes, I guess, you know, kind of
0: post-structural, post-identity, full-metal world that this character lives within. Yeah, it's, it's, I've seen it often used as like just a poor substitute for trans, for people who don't really understand it.
1: Exactly, and it's highly appropriated too um, by the settler sexualities or LGBTQ peoples. Um, so I was put forward. Um, I didn't feel comfortable being in that category. Um, I had a lot of conversations with some of my trans kin, like Gwen Benoey, Vivek Shraya, Kai Cheng Tom, um, thinking about like, what should I do because I wanted to kind of practice that that care. I think storytelling in its most rudimental sense is about community care. Um, so awards are nice, but also like, that's not why I'm writing. I'm writing to kind of better communities. So what I wanted to do with that was kind of do it in the most ethical um, and respectful sense that I could. And for me, that meant withdrawal, which a lot of people, there was a lot of comments online by kind of I would say like white cis queer men who were like what the hell are you doing uh, you're giving up this kind of major nomination you're kind of um for lack of a better word like shitting on our organization like we are like the forefathers of queerness we have kind of set this mandate like we've made this space for you and i was like well first of all m- my identity as a queer person predates yours in 1492 but anywho um uh, at the same time i thought the trans category was something that was introduced a handful of years ago. It's been, within the time it's been less than a decade, it's been won several times by non-trans people who had trans characters. Um, and it was also fought for by trans people. So it's, again, to bring it back to that conversation with those men, it's like, you're also forgetting who fought for you in someone like Stonewall, or somewhere like Stonewall, right? Trans women of color. It's the same thing that was happening there. So I needed to kind of pay my respects, um, and pay my, be ethical with those people. So I withdrew because that was not for me, and I am much happier because of it. And I would, I just kind of dream of a world where we have more trans writers, um, trans writers of color, or trans writers of really kind of any intersectional identity winning the awards that they're so well deserved because we rarely see them.
0: Okay, let's talk about Johnny Appleseed. So. this 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 book is is kind of a big deal it was long listed for the Geller, shortlisted for the governor general's prize it's currently shortlisted for the amazon canada first novel award which is very lucrative um that's gonna be announced may 22nd um yeah tell tell us about johnny
1: yeah this johnny's like the the I guess the the journey with Johnny has been a whirlwind. Everything has just kind of been. My whole life has just kind of been upended. Uh, I'm, a gra- I'm a grad student at the U of C I'm studying in English, but focusing on Indigenous literatures and cultures. Um, and so it's kind of put my dissertation on hold. Um, it's put a my t- it kind of impacted some of my teaching um, because these awards will come up and they like it's mandatory that you attend. Um, so it's been a whirlwind, but it's been a warm winds. So I keep saying. So Johnny is like this, the glitter princess, um, and I kind of think of them as sibling stories. Like Johnny Appleseed is the sibling to Full Metal. Like within Full Metal, you kind of get to see the, maybe the Avatar or the Virus or the software themselves. But I kind of think that Johnny is like the the human. Alternative to that um, so Johnny also kind of dabbles in online like online sex work is his main source of income um, And he's also kind of very much interested in performance online within that kind of employment um, But they, they go hand in hand so Johnny has again another the character that's sat with me for a long time When I was like 18 19 a burgeoning writer, I suppose I was like very obsessed with the beatniks as I'm sure a lot of us were I have them like tattooed on my arm, but I added stuff around it <laughs> Uh, Because I was really infatuated with someone like Allen Ginsberg or um, Neil Cassidy, um, or even Jack Kerouac, just this stream of consciousness style, or this performative style, or this oral style that Ginsberg was kind of perhaps repopularizing. Because it's all about orality again, Um, and again, really kind of unabashed and really kind of unapologetic about identities, be them about class or about sexuality. Um, It was very, it was. Maybe race was a little less um, to the, at the forefront during the Beatnik time. Yes. But there's also amazing people like Albert Saijo, who I would also consider um, a Beatnik poet. But so I was really interested in that. I wanted to kind of create a cast of characters um, called The Concrete Poets, is what I made, um, who were like this kind of these indigenous Beatnik kids living in a small town, in Manitoba, who were just like, having existential crises at 18 for some reason, <laughs> um, and just, just kind of living the beatnik life. Um, so Johnny was like within this cast of characters, but more like a tertiary character. Um, so as I got old, like older and kind of my writing process and my writing agendas and my interests, writing interests kind of, I guess, changed or kind of aged a bit more. Uh, I was less interested in kind of writing, that type of writing, that type of story. So the characters all kind of fell off or died or like wilted back into the into the uh, metaphorical ground. But Johnny was like literally this like one who always stayed. Um, so when I finished Full Metal, I was working with Jordan Abel, author of Injun, uh, Place of Scraps, um, and Talon Books. And so we had these beach poems in Full Metal, which they were really evocative, sensual. They just didn't kind of fit with this technological world that Zoa was building. Uh, so Jordan, was like let's, let's remove these let's call these away just like put them in your back pocket so we did um, I was still very attached to them so I finished Full Metal finished the tour and then I was taking this course at the UFC with Aretha Van Herk called 100 pages in 100 days and it was as tiring as it sounds <laughs> but it was very generative um, so I had to kind of come up with a short story Uh, as a proposal for the class, so I just thought, let me take these beach poems, and I tried different kind of characters, um, different identities, different ages, and then it was just like, it was with my insomnia ability, I guess, it was like 1 a.m., and I just, maybe I was just so tired, but I kind of felt like the character that was Johnny, he was always kind of knocking on the door, but this time he just like kind of sashayed, onto the middle stage and was like kind of like write me into these stories so I, I recalled this character um and i put johnny into these beach scenes and from there it just like it was kind of like this organic way it all just kind of came together all the puzzle pieces clicked into pla- into place uh, and that was how i got the first scenes with johnny and um, his lover or friend or brother or kin at times tias um, so those are the kind of the earliest bits of johnny and some those are some of my favorite scenes but they're kind of versioning sexuality and identities in the beaches of Manitoba. So it's been a process. It's been a process. But once I started that, I finished Johnny Appleseed, like the, the entire manuscript in about a year, a little over a year and a half. So he
0: was just like a whirlwind. And he's just a very generative character to me. How uh, were you surprised at all by the reception that it got? Very
1: surprised. I thought I was writing for a very specific audience. I was like, I'm, I wrote it as YA, Arsenal Pulp was like, this is a little risqué, I guess, for YA. They also were coming off of um, what was happening with Raziel Reads when everything feels like the movies, winning, um, which is a very kind of sex positive children's book. Um, Winning the GGs for the children's literature categorization, so I felt... A lot of people were upset about that. There's a lot, Barbara Kay specifically, or especially... (laughs) Never heard of her. (laughs) Nor have I, or her son. If she has one, it's like Voldemort, we don't say those names. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I submitted as YA, and Arsenal was like, it's a little risque, let's make it a novel. So we did this novel and I was like, I'm really kind of writing. I think the only people who are gonna read this are like my other two-spirit kin or queer indigenous kin or maybe some indigenous peoples who like want to learn more about, I guess, two-spirit histories or like what it's like now. Um, And then I was just like sleeping one night. I woke up, sometimes I wake up at these absurd hours, checked my phone, I think it was like 6 a.m., which is absurd to me. (laughs) So I wake up at noon and I'm like, I'm still tired. so I was checking my phone, and I got, had just like had all of these kind of messages, and I was like, "Oh my God, someone died, or something, something terrible has happened." So I opened them, and it was just people were tweeting like, "Johnny Appleseed has made the Giller long list," um, and it was just like it just blew up almost like overnight, pretty much. And that was something I never expected to be, and I, I'm still kind of shocked that I ever made the Giller. Um, long List, which for the most part, I think, is the very first time kind of a queer indigenous novel has been on that list. Um, again, very few indigenous writers have ever made that list. Um, so I was very honored to have accepted or have been kind of part of that long list family and the Giller family at large. And I also shared it with Tanya Taguk And it's like, I was f- freaking out. I was like, what if we go on tour together? We're going to be able to hang out every day. That didn't work, but we're also on the Amazon one together now.
0: Hey, you're a direct competition. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I think it was less of competition where it was like kind of kinship connections. So hopefully we get to hang out and have some dinner. Have some
0: that's, that's, that's entirely fair There's also like $60,000 on the line, so.
1: It's true. It's true. There's still some monetary value. It's still a business, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, the game happened, and then it was like everything else just kind of happened. And it was like dominoes almost, like the Gigi Happened, the Alberta Book Awards, Manitoba Book Awards, um, and now the Amazon Prize as well. So it's just like, it's been kind of everything, I guess, is the only kind of word I could put to the experience that
0: it's been. Why, 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 why do you think that uh, got so much attention? I think what it does, what it shows, and this is how I feel
1: truthfully, is like I think Canlin's changing. Uh, I think we're moving less away from kind of the linear structures of novels or stories where we kind of, you know, you have the action and you have the climax and the denouement. Um, I think we're kind of, at least how I see it, the books that I see winning, like Therese Marie Mayo's Heartberries or Mama Scotch by Daryl MacLeod. Um, I think the the structure and the texture and the expectations of literature in what we call Canada are changing very rapidly. So I think Johnny just kind of, maybe this is his own special foreseeing ability, just kind of came at the right time um, and was published at the, the exact right moment. So I think I'm lucky in that sense, but I'm also, I think Johnny's kind of a very bad, in my opinion, very badass for being part of this What I see, this monumental shift in the literature of Canada, um, including more writers of color, indigenous writers, queer writers, we have Casey Platt up for major awards as well as a trans writer, um, with Little Fish, um, Catherine Hernandez. Who we're seeing at the forefront is vastly different. It's a complete 180 than we saw five, ten years ago. Um, So I think we're moving in a hopeful direction. and I think I'm happy to have seen Johnny kind of be a part of that wave, I suppose.
0: What kind of reaction and reception have you gotten to both Johnny and Full Metal from? Uh, indigenous audiences and queer audiences, specifically? It's been very enlightening.
1: Look, that's the most humbling bit, is specifically like if I do performances in spaces that are indigenous or queer, uh, or sometimes both, it's usually, that's a rare thing. Um, but th- it's been well received. Um, like The stories I've shared, people have come up to being like, I've, this is my story, I've seen myself in these spaces or these situations, or I've had those same thoughts. Um, so it, for me, like that's the biggest award right there. Like. Yes, it's not, it nice. Would be nice to have sixty thousand dollars with the Amazon prize, or a hundred thousand with the Giller, or the twenty thousand. I think comes with the GG. But like, that's nice. But again, that's not not why I'm working and doing what I'm doing. I'm doing it again as kind of a community self care and to kind of transform their lives and give those people who've never really seen themselves um, a point of reference, I suppose. So that again, I think my role, like, yes, I'm a writer. I'm a poet. I'm a novelist. But at the bottom of all that, the bottom of that well, like I'm still a storyteller and within my community like that's, there's an ethics of, there's an ethics there and there's a a level of kind of um, reciprocity that's owed back. So within kind of indigenous oral storytelling, the, the storyteller was always kind of someone who would teach lessons and kind of help foster moral, moral guidance. Um, and help development, I suppose. So I still think that's my, that's my role, even in 2019, um, within the kind of large industrial machine that is literature in Canada, at the bottom of that, like, those awards are nice, the money's, when it, if it ever comes, is nice. Um, but the main, the, the main point is that I'm transforming those communities who desperately need it and helping raise new voices and new generations to kind of take my spot and then push it even further. So yeah, it's been well-received, and I'm beyond humbled. And, like, that's the biggest reward to me.
0: You, you are a Calgarian, and you've been here for a while now, but you didn't, you didn't start here. Uh, tell us about where you grew up, uh, what was your childhood like? So I grew up in the coldest
1: slash hottest province ever. Also, it's full of mosquitoes. Uh, Manitoba. So I grew up um, both primarily in Selkirk, Manitoba, which is this small kind of Small, well, it's a small city now, um, just outside of Winnipeg. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be the capital. We kind of had these like back and forth, so who's going to be the capital, Selkirk or Winnipeg. So I grew up in this, yeah, this little town. It's a catfish capital. Um, so it's good fishing. Um, but is, yeah, small little city. Uh, so I grew up there. I grew up, also spent a lot of time on my reservation, Peg was First Nation, which is about two hours north. Uh, and then Winnipeg is also kind of where I kind of became into myself as a creative person. Winnipeg is a very lively and beautiful kind of creative hub. Um, So I grew up, I came up with um, spoken word artists, various other um, writers within any genre who kind of trained me, I think um, unconsciously so, of how to kind of perform and not be a poet who talks like a poet, at least when they're reading. Um, So yeah, Winnipeg and Manitoba have kind of been, this has kind of been my everything, my home, yeah.
0: What was your relationship to your culture and your indigeneity growing up? Was it, was it a strong force in your life? Not
1: always, no. Um, so like my father was a sixty scoop survivor because my grandmother was murdered in the 60s. I write, about, I write about that in full metal. Um, so like my family was kind of put into this disarray. Um, my father really he was kind of put into this non-indigenous family and then was kind of put into foster care um, and lived as a homeless person. Uh, and then my mother, she grew up on the, on the reservation in Pegues. Um, But again, when we kind of, they moved to the cities and more urban centers, we kind of, there was like this kind of segregation, obviously, that happened. Um, so growing up, I would kind of, I'm a little more, I think I'm white passing compared to some of my family members. So I would always be, and this is something that Johnny also struggles with is like you're too white to be indigenous, and then you're too indigenous to be white. So I was always in this in between space, and then also Manitoba, specifically Winnipeg, has a very dense indigenous population. Um, and within that population, there's a lot of poverty and homelessness. Um, so I just remember as a kid, I was like really. I think at this kind of disjuncture between identities because the indigenous students obviously were treated one way and the, the non-indigenous students, primarily white, were treated another way and I, I could see that and then I could also could sense that I could move between the spaces, code switch almost. So growing up as a kid and as a teenager I kind of disassociated myself with that. I just had a lot of shame kind of revolving around this idea of like the Indian or indigeneity um, and I think it's because I also wasn't being, we weren't talking we, we, we talk about it, we go to things like ceremonies and whatnot, but as a family unit, we wouldn't talk about kind of the trauma that was undergirding all of that, which was like, yeah, residential schools, the 60s scoop, um, missing and murdered indigenous women, my grandmother being part of that, um, or also my mom's own experiences with it as well, which is a different kind of gendered inverse. Um, we didn't have those difficult conversations. So I was... My later later teen years or early 20s was like when I kind of started to kind of come back into myself, call into myself. And that kind of came from um, taking a course, actually with Trish Sala, um, this amazing kind of trans literatures and cultures course, where I was like the very first time I was introduced to that term, Two Spirit. And then I, I was thinking about it a lot and researching it and reading about it. And then once I claimed that, it was like, That was kind of what called me back in, called me home. Um, So this idea of like coming out calls me home, and I thought that was kind of like beautiful, um, poetic traversal, I suppose. But it was it took a long time to kind of like undo some of those kind of um, colonial undergirdings, I suppose, or colonial um, viruses, almost in my head, to kind of undo those and then kind of switch them so I could see why I was feeling that way. And I think that's a lot of a process a lot of kind of urban indigenous kids go through.
0: You went back to a robot metaphors there pretty quickly, with the viruses.
1: I always come back to the cyborg. <laughs> my operating system or something. <laughs>
0: um, how did you get into writing? Uh,
1: I think I've always been, I've always been kind of a writing in some sense. Like my mom has these very embarrassing stories. I mean, when I was like six or seven, um, one of which is, I think I was like five or six. My mom still has this, this laminated, so embarrassing. <laughs> um, these stories of these like anthropomorphic toys and it was like so she jokes that toy story kind of stole the idea from me um but yeah i've always kind of been telling these weird or odd tales i feel like ever since i've kind of had the ability to kind of at least speak in some sense or move the body in some sense uh, and then it became more serious as i primarily in high in high school i was still writing um it's kind of became something that was more natural to me. Um, so what
0: kinds of things were you writing? Were you like, writing poetry for yourself? or
1: Writing poetry, writing short stories, um, a lot of, I was just non-stop taking English courses. I was like, I could take science or math, but I have a smartphone, so like, I literally can't do math. Um, Or like, I can do some basic math, but I'm very bad at it. And I just never had the capacity for science. I can't memorize to save my life. So I would just like overload on English. So I took a lot of like, um, I took a journalism course. Um, So in high school I was doing a lot of, writing a little bit of everything, terribly so. But kind of like finding where I was comfortable in.
0: A lot of your work obviously has to do with sexuality. When, at what point do you think that was something that became a factor in your work? When, When did that become something you started exploring?
1: Hmm. Good question. I think my early to mid twenties, like, and I, so like I came out when I was like twenty-two or twenty-three, but new prior. Um, but like that opening of the floodgates, I think, is really what. uh, Once that happened, and that I have always kind of said, writing kind of saves you from yourself, or it's almost like an exorcism, almost um, in a sense. So once I did that, the best way I could. Learn about or figure out about me was through the act of writing. Um, so, like, once that kind of that, um, coming out process happened, it was when all my writing, in a sense, shifted to think more so about how the body and the identity was always kind of imbricated within any type of mode of storytelling. Um, and that's when I think my writing really kind of shifted. Because, as I said earlier, as I came out, I kind of came in at the same time. So if these two identities were intersecting um, and writing was kind of, yeah, the mirror or the generator that I used to really kind of unpack that for myself.
0: Do you think going forward you're going to continue to explore those intersections, or are you, are you looking to like oh, I've, I've done enough with this? I'm going to start writing about something else.
1: Yeah, so I'm working on a maybe new just
0: like a straight cyborg story. I don't know.
1: It could happen. It could like I mean I'm always down for some cyborgs. Um, so I'm working on a new book right now, which is tentatively titled Making Love with the Land. So it's coming up with Kanoff Canada, hopefully in about 2021, early 2021, hoping to have a draft done (laughs) by the end of the summer. It's not going at the speed I'm hoping. (laughs) Um, So this book is, I think I'm always going to be imbricated within those identity categories because I think as a a BIPOC writer, as a queer writer, or really anyone who's a disempowered writer in any sense, um, doesn't have the ability to disassociate themselves from, like the body never really leaves the work. Like I could never go uh, write about like the the, arch- the architecture of this building, um the Calgary Public Library, but if I did, it would have to be through my own body like the pro- so that 's always like a lens for me, so I think it's always going to be there, but at the same time the, at least with this new book it's not taking it's not the 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 focal point, I suppose uh, so this new book is kind of exploring things like mental health, um, so there's chapters on insomnia and anxiety, um, body dysmorphia. Uh, and then kind of larger kind of mental health issues, mental health issues kind of affecting my communities at the same time, so these like taboo topics. Um, So the idea for this book kind of came out of difficult topics or conversations I'd have with community members or family members who would tell me things about like suicidal inclinations or eating disorders um, or kind of anxiety disorders, but thought that was something that was like a singular thing. Um, So they would all share these ideas and it was interesting to me that we weren't kind of sharing cohesively as a as a unit or as a collective uh, so that's what this book is about is like I'm putting my own body on the line uh, this for me I'm not hiding behind a character which makes it a little scary uh, or I'm not hiding behind genre so this is a book of creative nonfiction which is primarily dealing with yeah with these topics but then also linking it with prim- most primarily Manitoba but there's also some Alberta the hoodoos from Riding on stone come in the mountains um, the bow rivers there so for me uh, the writing, I keep shifting gears in terms of genre, poetry to prose, now to nonfiction, um, to challenge myself, and then to also see how the voice mutates into different different avenues when it's applied to a different genre. But this one, it's I think, it's the most vulnerable, or the most um, precarious situation I've put myself in as a storyteller, but I think I need to kind of do it with that gritty honesty um, and that vulnerability, and kind of like shed the, the masks of Johnny and Zawa to really kind of give my readers or give my communities um, a sneak peek or a behind-the-scenes scene of maybe what were some of the
0: progenitors of these books. Um, Let's go back to Calgary for a minute. Um, I'm I'm interested in your your thoughts on the city and your relationship with the city, but uh, let's just start with how you ended up here.
1: So I came here almost five years ago now to do my um, PhD at the University of Calgary. Um, so why, why, why Calgary? Calgary specifically, because U of C is one of two schools in Canada, that lets you do a creative thesis a dissertation if you'd like, or you can do the standard kind of essay format, the critical format, or you can do a hybrid, which is what I'm trying to do. Um, anywhere else would have to be like the old kind of meat and potato style writing, I suppose. So it's Calgary or Dalhousie, and I had to come to Calgary, I didn't want to go to the East Coast. Uh, I wanted to stay in the prairies, because I'm very much rooted here, and also I was hardcore fangirling over Larissa Lai, who's my advisor. <laughs> I love Soulfish Girl, um, and I got introduced to her, and she was excited to see me, and everything just kind of fell into place. So, I'm having a lovely time, and Larissa is like the most badass supervisor you can have.
0: <laughs> Our interests meld. Yeah. So, what, did, had you been to Calgary before? Had you visited or anything?
1: I have. Um, speaking of being new, I would always come for the Calgary Comic Expo. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I love the city, it's so fun. Uh, I was coming, someone from coming out of a small town. Manitoba was like, they have a train, that's so cool. So, yeah, I, I visited a couple times prior, prior for Stampede, but primarily for the Comic Expo and just like fell in love with the city. It's, it's aesthetically um, and kind of culturally
0: beautiful and enriched. Oh, say more about that. I got. I want to know about that. <laughs> so I've heard very few people would describe Calais as an aesthetically beautiful city.
1: I well, I saw so live. I live. Maybe it's where I live right now. But I live in Dover, um, so I'm on the hill. Um, so I just kind of walk onto the hill, and I get this kind of beautiful kind of um, view. So like the mountains are in the skyline, um, the city's right there, the sun sets right right there behind those mountains and it's just like this most it's a very aesthetically pleasing space to live um and it's full of greenery and then i also it's right i live within forest lawn also so it's kind of encaptured within that so i live in this kind of highly um populated bipoc space which i love gives me my small town feels i love the walmart where you have to p- I don't I love that, but when you know when you go to Walmart, when you have to pay the one dollar to use the card, like you know you're in like a, a beautifully culturally rich space. That's gonna be <laughs> full of people who are like BIPOC people. So I love that, um, and I know. I just I I guess maybe because I am from the prairies, everything's flat. Um, Winnipeg really has like the downtown is meh. I guess. <laughs> so I think yeah, for me I, I love. I think. Calgary is aesthetically pleasing okay. because of this because of the city but also because of the surrounding surrounding um, ecosystems and land bases as well.
0: You also said culturally um, beautiful and I'm interested as in, uh, somebody who's a writer and an artist um, how do you how do you relate to the city culturally?
1: Yeah so I think I've learned most about myself as a, like I came to Calgary which is um, Mokinstis, Blackfoot Confederacy, um, and heavily populated by Blackfoot peoples here on Treaty 7. And I, this is where I came to like learn Cree in the Blackfoot <laughs> territory, <laughs> um, which I did. Um, so it has, like again, a kind of this dense, beautiful population of indigenous peoples, um, primarily Blackfoot again, and it also has all the kind of bordering um, sober nations or reservations around it as well, like uh, Sutina, Kainai um, so I, I love that I, one of my favorite things to do, me and my partner is like, let's go, our date nights are always at Grey Eagle Casino, <laughs> just in Sutina territory, um, but I, I, I think I learned most about myself as not only an indigenous person but as a, a Cree and Ojibwe person here, outside of my territories um, because I've had, I've had oh. amazing conversations and oh. made amazing friends and kin with kind of the Blackfoot Confederacy and the peoples within it as well. And the funny stories like the fact between Blackfoot and Treaty 7 and Cree along the plains, like we were actually supposed to, historically, we were enemies. Um, So we were like warring nations, we were two of the largest within Canada, Um, so it's funny to me that we have these beautiful relationships and we're like, a lot of my Blackfoot friends go to Winnipeg and I came here and like, I learned so much about being Blackfoot in the Cree space, so I I love that kind of like cross-cultural blend, I
0: suppose, and the kind of the mending kinship systems we have (laughs) as warring nations, yeah. The University of Calgary has a a really good English program, as you said. I'm interested, um, outside of that, in your views of the city's literary culture and literary spaces. Mm hmm So between the two, I do think Winnipeg has a better kind of creative... because
1: everything's central. What I love about Calgary is everything's sprawled. Um, So it's a huge city. I think it's like third or fourth largest in Canada. But it feels like a small town, because everything's in pockets. Whereas, like, Winnipeg's really condensed. Um, So I think that has an advantage. But I also, I'm very biased about Winnipeg, um, because it has a beautiful, or sorry, maybe a very, um, maybe Winni- I would say Winnipeg is the Vancouver of indigenous writing. It's like a lot of experimental things are happening there, and a lot of prominent writers, Katerina Vermette, Marie Ann Baker, they have the indigenous writing collective there. So I found, um, as a writer, that's, it was a space where people, and there was a lot of open mics, spoken word evenings, which, which is also here, but it's you kind of had to move around. Like these were kind of like, spoken word nights were like bars, you could just like bounce between them. and So I thought that was really cool. You didn't have to have to travel or take a lot of transit to go to these spaces. Once you're in the hub, you can kind of move around as you'd like. Hip-hop night right there, across the street spoken word, across the street bookstore that's having a poetry night. Um, but at the same time, like I love Calgary. I love its bookstores, Pages, Owl's Nest, Shelf Life. I freaking way too much, <laughs> and also it has beautiful spaces for readings. Um, like again, like I've never it's my first time here, but the Calgary Public Library. I've heard amazing things about readings happening here, and again, the University of Calgary has I think a large investment in it. Um, as someone who sat on the board for the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program, bringing in writers in residence, our current Liz Howard, our forthcoming Sharon Paul Pry, but then also bringing in the kind of the Big names as well. Um, and then also, Larissa Lies Tea House also brings in amazing writers. So I think Calgary, what I love about Winnipeg is it's very grassroots, but Calgary has the income and the social capital to bring in big voices and to bring in new and exciting voices at the same time to have these amazing conversations. And it, maybe that's also a blessing. It's kind of happening like kind of um, starways all across the entire city of Calgary. So I think it's accessible, too, if you can't move across from the northeast to the southeast, there's still something always kind of happening. Um, so I think, yeah, Calgary has a beautiful creative writing scene, a creative arts scene. Um, it has a lot more. Winnipeg has a lot of writing, but here there's a lot of filmmakers that I've met, or a lot of singer-songwriters, and they all kind of share the same space, and I think that's, that's amazing. That's something I didn't really quite see as much in, in Winnipeg, so...
0: Does that mean you're going to be sticking around here? Are you are you a Calgarian now for forever?
1: I do like it, minus the one-week stampede happens. <laughs> the downtown becomes like the Hunger Games. That's a
0: good time to go to Winnipeg.
1: Exactly, visit. Um, I, but I, I love Calgary. I, ideally, I would like to stay here. Um, so I have about a year or two left in my dissertation, and then, like, fingers crossed and something opens in that time because it kind of just feels like home to me now. Yeah.
0: All right, that's all I got, Josh. Thanks for doing this.
1: Oh, thanks for having
0: me. A lot of fun, a lot of nerd out. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: that's it for the show. Big thanks to Josh Whitehead. You can and should buy his books at your local independent bookstore. The Calgarian is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Lambert. Theme music is Dandelion by Ghostkeeper. If you like this show, Please feed and water it by telling your friends, by leaving a review in your podcast app, or by contributing a buck or two a month on Patreon. Visit thecalgarian.ca and find me on Twitter, at TS underscore Lambert. Thanks for listening.